Good morning, Sarah Hefla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. It's early for you over there, lady. It's so early that I'm still in my night clothes, <laughs> in my robe. Can you see that? Hot. Well, I'm actually dressed for the day because when we finish, one of the things I'm going to do today, because I already have to be up at B&H, which is a, it's an electronic store midtown on the west side, I'm going to go over and check out the, uh, the striking New York Times reporters today. <gasps> Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the New York Times reporters are on strike. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, 11. that'll be really interesting. So I'll bet you'll put that on social media then. I might. Yeah, I'll probably do a little video. So there are 1,100 New York Times reporters are striking. I looked it up yesterday because Sarah and I were discussing it. There are 4,700 Times employees. That includes, of course, people all over the world. But this is here in New York. Um, they are uh, striking for better pay. Shocking. I, I got to tell you, I can't have a whole bunch of sympathy for them. Uh-oh. But then again, what? What do you mean? Well, well, I don't know. I just thought, why? Why are you? Why don't you have sympathy with our the the striking New York Times reporters? Well, I guess I'd have to see what uh, what they're earning. But my my impression is it was something like. One hundred thirty thousand dollars. Where am I pulling this number out from? I don't You're remember. You're pulling out numbers. No, I'm not. Nothing. We don't know enough to have sympathy with the striking New York Times writers, do we? But I have a question. Yes. I mean, like, yes. I have a question for you. you okay, so you said there's forty seven hundred employees. There's yep. eleven hundred striking. Yep. Twenty five percent. Why? I'm sorry. I'm so stupid. It like every day I learn how stupid I am. Why is it not everybody striking? <laughs> like, I thought that when there was a strike, everybody stopped. Well, okay. So this is the New York Times Union, right? That That yeah. is doing this. The Times Union, they may be enfolded into a larger union. But let's just remember, let's just remember that this is the union that helped drum out Donald McNeil. Okay? Okay. <laughs> I've just lost a little bit of sympathy. Okay. Right. This is what I'm saying. I mean, I, I, I look, I have very, very mixed feelings about unions. I, 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 there's no reason for me to go into historically why I have mixed feelings about unions. I, I do think often at this point in time in history, they are maybe not the best things. I guess also, you know, Sarah, but you and wait I. Wait a minute. I mean, they're not. They're like, oh, you know what they are? They're like 20th century um, infrastructure that's being dragged into the 21st century. That's right. That's exactly and, right. And it's like it's like trying to, you know, drive a car on a railway <laughs> or something. That, and and this is and a- there it, it doesn't work. But here's the problem: we need something because I do, I don't know about the New York Times reporters in general, but I know that at least in online journalism, like at Salon, we did unionize. Part of the problem was um, the the uh, the word exploitation is used so much, but I mean. That company was exploiting people and there really were no protections and they were paying so little and you need some kind of cushion. You need some sort of protection. I don't know that the architecture of of the 20th century is really going to work in the 21st. However, they need something and so people have gone to that. So... Have you ever been part of a union? I have never been part of a union. Actually, I was part of the SAG union for a while and had amazing, that Screen Actors Guild, amazing health insurance. Oh, um, wow, da But I, <laughs> Hello. For a commercial. <laughs> okay, a commercial that I was in that I never saw. What was the commercial for? Okay, so it was a friend of mine. Um, I was like in my 20s. I was living in LA. A friend of mine's like, oh, my brother's going out to shoot this commercial. This was when ATM machines were like kind of new or something. Or like it was it was called Starlink. Oh Star my God, Link. those newfangled ATM new, machines. Yeah, because I'm, I used to be like the horse, the, the Wells Fargo wagon would drive up <laughs> yeah, and exactly. give you some money. No, this yeah. was for something called Starlink. <laughs> I don't know. It was like on the back of the I remember ATM that. Part. Wait, Starlink, isn't that Elon oh, Musk? That's, <laughs> that's not what you were. That's I not don't what know. it was. Or something or other. And um, she's like, just go down and they're just going to like have people like ad-libbing in front of an ATM machine. So I went down and I did it. 
fine, whatever. I'm like sitting in my house once with my boyfriend at the time. My daughter was little and he's like, oh, you've got some registered letter here. And it was like, oh, you've been in this. And there was checks for $10,000. What? No, 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 no. No, listen to me. I got these checks. Wait till they see my ad-libbing in front of an ATM machine. (laughs) I I am, that is, that's my jam. I do it so well. I'm like, look at me. I I totally need some money. I got checks for, I think it was about, Almost two years, every three months, I got like 10 grand in checks from this commercial, which That's I never saw. That's story you've ever I heard. never saw. And, and I only, well, I know about it because I got the money and the insurance, but I walked into a pizza place in uh, Silver Lake and this guy was working at the pizzeria. He goes, no. you're famous. I'm like, no, no I'm not. And he's like, yeah, you are. I've seen you on TV. I'm like, no, you haven't. He's like, I have. And it was on this stupid commercial. Anyway, that's the only union I've ever been in. So, uh, Oh my God. Well, I have you. a union story. Okay. I jo- So uh, when I worked at Salon, we made a, they, they unionized and I joined it, but I joined it like a week before I quit. So I was part of a union for an entire week. I'm an expert. Ask me anything. And did you get like all the benefits? What, how did, how much did you suck out of that week's worth of benefits? I don't think, I don't have any memory of, you know, that was kind of a tense time at Salon because we unionized without the knowledge of the editor-in-chief. What? And it was kind of like we sprung it on him. And it was a it was an attempt to kind of get him out. And they did. I was I was working from home in Dallas at this point. And oh, I'm airing dirty laundry. But you yeah, know you are. it was it was so intense. There was a time where the staff of Salon basically didn't, and, and I don't include myself in this because I was so out of it. I was, <clears throat> I don't mean like, I mean, I was living in Dallas and I was running the personal essay section, but it was like my little fiefdom. I didn't have much communication with people back in New York. I wasn't going to editorial meetings. Like it, it just, I had my own deal. But what happened is that the staff kind of lost faith in the editor in chief and they secretly unionized and then sprung it on him. And then he ended up leaving at some point. It was a mess. It's very, it's very Machiavellian. But you have to think about it. I mean, journalists, not all journalists, but you know, most journalists are like, you got to be kind of savvy. You got to be like kind of smart. And then there also, there's just so much crazy professional jealousy and competition that, yeah, if they want to gang up on you, it's not going to be good, which we've seen. Okay. We, we started talking about this. We talked about this with, uh, with the unions or the strike at the New York Times. Well, you know, the journalist got mad at Donald McNeil Jr. over a bullshit accusation, really, in my estimation, or a, a very misconstrued accusation, and they got him out. Boy, journalists want to drum you out. I, I wouldn't want to have them as enemies, which we kind of tease up a little bit what we wanted to talk about a little more. What did you, uh, what did you text me? Last Friday night, Sarah Hepler. I told you I take it all back. Twitter is thrilling. Uh, do you want to explain why quickly? Since uh, because I, I the tend Twitter to be a little files, uh, like pop. You know, I, I I'm trying to avoid the verb dump. Dumped. People keep saying there was a <laughs> dump, and word. I'm like, stop saying ew, that. Ew. I know. Yeah. Matt Tidy's dump, and I'm like, don't tell me ew. about that. Okay. <laughs> There was a Twitter thread, a tweet thread that came out uh, around 5.30 Central Time. And it was by the journalist Matt Taibbi, very famously, uh, formerly of Rolling Stone, now uh, one of the most successful Substack independent journalists. And, And the Twitter files were kind of a look behind the scenes of the Hunter Biden laptop debacle of two years ago. And you and I can talk and argue or not about the import of that, of the information that was in, in those files. A lot of it was uh, internal documents, emails, emails between Twitter employees, emails with some politicians, mostly on Biden's side. Um, but uh, 
But what absolutely riveted me was the way it dropped. And then there was this explosion of opinion. And it was going in two completely different directions. I mean, people were like, this is a blockbuster. And then people were like, what a sad, disgraceful fall from grace Matt Taibbi has had. This guy is scum. And following the wet willy of these, these opinions was riveting for me. And it was like it it la- the Twitter threads lasted for like exactly two hours. It started at five thirty, it ended at seven thirty. For two hours, I just sat there, just like, what's going on? What's going on? This guy, this this person, that person. And then, you know, one of the things that happens is that you see that several tweets were taken down at the request of some people in the Democratic Party, and there's like. You know, there's some some suggestion that this is suppression of information. Um, now, of course, these turn out to be maybe dick pics. I don't know. But James Woods. Do you remember James Woods? The actor? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. And he was a famous actor for a while, but then he got on Twitter and it was like, oh, well, man. He also had that incredible drama with the actress um, that was in Blade Runner. What was her name? The gorgeous. Oh, one. Sean Young. They had some like major, I'm not remembering what the details now, but it was. Oh, well, she's a piece of work too. Yeah. Insane. Like absolute insanity, like in public view to very intense people. I guess they'd had a romance, but I, I, yeah, you want to talk about South. It was just like nuclear South. Anyway. Um, so anyway, so James Woods is a conservative. Uh, we learned that when he went on Twitter (laughs) and, um, Twitter, one of the very bad things that happened to celebrities, by the way. It's just like, I don't even want to know this stuff. I, I've never thought that I would miss the studio system where like, <laughs> I, I, I do. I'm just like, make them, you know, holograms of yeah. like, I just want a Rorschach. Don't give me all this. I don't want to know what your politics are. Anyway, um, he is one of the people whose tweets have been removed. And then he goes on Tucker Carlson and he's like, I'm going to sue the DNC. And this is like within an hour of this dropping. So there was so much drama that I got sucked into. And my dopamine was going crazy. I'm reading the Twitter. Each of these tweets, like the little retweet button and the quote tweet button and the like button are oh just goodness. going wild like a slot machine. It was. And it I'm was looking crazy. at me like my eyes are turning to like cartoon swirls. <laughs> and I'm like, Nancy, I can't stop. <laughs> and meanwhile, you're just like, meh. No, that's not true. You were I like, I gotta, I gotta do my I was, nails. I no, gotta do my hair. Yeah, that's it. I have to take a nap. No, I was watching it, but I was also with my mother, who is old and kind needs a lot of attention. Anyway, I did no, I did, I did watch it um, pretty much in real time. I've also obviously was just fascinated by the responses. I mean, you know, look, everything has like a bit of energy, right? So yes. So you've got James Wood saying, I'm going to sue because now he's seen sort of behind the curtain that the things that he suspected were happening to his account actually were happening. You have Donald Trump come in and say, well, look, you see, now we can prove that the social media companies were against us. And now we have to do everything we can, including perhaps like obviating the constitution in order to prove that it's just- just to be clear, I think Donald Trump was talking on Truth Social. He wasn't. Yeah. He's been invited back to Twitter, but wow. he hasn't tweeted yet. Yeah. Um, but that was another one who entered. It was like, oh, Donald Trump's back in the building. He's going to just he's going to, uh, you know, uh, sidestep the Constitution now. Uh, it, it's just like, you know, everybody uses the energy for their own purposes. What I was fascinated by, I'm always fascinated by, it's sort of amusing, but it's also sort of disgraceful, is just the people be clowning themselves. Yeah. Okay, the people that are like, uh, you know, Matt Taib, this was in Rolling Stone, as I recall, printed uh, that, you know, they called Matt Taibbi, who was their star journalist for what, 15 years? They called him a Substack blogger. I mean, you just, and then I saw somebody yesterday, uh, I can't remember who it was, tweeted like, because there's another part of this we're going to talk about, which is like, hasn't even dropped yet, or it's dropped, but we don't know what's going to happen. Barry Weiss, our our friend, was also given the same 
files, I believe, that Taibi was. And I think she's going to come in with part two. And people are like, oh, yeah, Barry Weiss. Like, what is she? She's an opinion writer. Like, why would we trust her with any of this information? I'm like, I'm sorry. Have you happened to notice, like, who the two biggest journalists are in the country these days, pretty much, that have gone out on their own? That would be Taibi and, and Barry Weiss now. The accusations are like, oh, so now they're just doing PR for the richest man in the world because Elon Musk was the one that got them them this information. Okay, I can I can see somebody trying to have that be a platform. I want to ask you a question, Sarah. Can you name a journalist that if Elon Musk had gone to them and said, "Here, I want to give you this stuff. This is what you know, one of the biggest stories of the past couple of years. Uh, I'm going to give it to you." How many journalists would have said no, would have sneered and said, I don't want that. That's not a story. Ben Collins, disinformation expert. I, I do not. Okay. Even if you feel like your whole brand is you are the disinformation expert, right? Ben Collins, the same Ben Collins who's putting thoughts into murdered people's heads, that guy. Yeah, because that that that's what's real. Oh, he's the guy I, that. Yeah, we, there was a great Jesse Single post about how he had talked about that that club shooting. You know, uh, where he was basically reading the minds of the people who had been murdered and telling you what they were thinking. It was very sketchy practice. It you was know, you, very, you don't know. Uh, you don't know. You anyway. get, it was it was gross. But okay, so this is your entire brand. I still I can't. Well, let me just say, I would not have any respect for a journalist who said, no, I don't want that. This is a story. Even if they told you, you can't write on your own platform, you're going to have to reveal this on Twitter, which was one of the, which was one of the um, rules of this. You know, Matt Taibbi has made, he's making a, a, a hefty six figures over on Substack. He's got so much also, money coming in. What he and, also did... He was very transparent about this, I think, for my money. He obviously, it, it, I think he framed it by saying it's been a crazy 96 hours. And he said to his readers, I, it's strange that I have to do it this way, but I am. And I, I, I think he kind of apologized that he wasn't just breaking it on his own substack. Um, well, I, I, I got to tell you, Sarah, if they'd come to us and said that, I would have taken it in a hot minute. A hot, I mean, I wouldn't have even w- thought about it. I mean, they did come. To, we said, did we say no? I, I don't remember Elon Musk approaching us to give us this information. No, I mean, I, I missed that email if he did. Yeah. If they gave us the Twitter files, I would just piss my pants. And then my revelations would be so dumb. They would be like, Yoel Roth drinks Yoo-Hoo. You know, like I would just, I would be terrible. <laughs> Yoo-Hoo? <laughs> Is that still around? You yeah, do? I don't know. It's on my mind because <laughs> it's on my mind what? because Kanye was drinking it in that stupid, crazy uh, video with Alex Jones where he's wearing a gimp mask. The that world is wild right now. It is so wild. It's so. I I uh, I saw Matt Welch last night, and um, I I repeated to him what I've said before, and I I've said to you. I sometimes feel as though. I'm like standing on the sidelines watching these people devour each other on a field. People that are just yeah. there. Everybody's on a hair trigger. Like they're just so angry all the time. And I, I, the number of adjectives I read yesterday trying to with people trying to to express their absolute and utter disdain for Barry and um, and Matt were, was incredible. It's like I wonder, like, do you hear yourself? Do you know that you're saying this out loud? Do you know that you're putting this in print? But obviously they kind of feel, I guess, like that's, I, I'm on this team. I, I find it, I find it so incurious. And you that's know, what really bums me out. New technology creates revolutions and, <clears throat> and new alignments. And I know that the internet doesn't feel like a new technology, but it is, historically speaking. You know, it is still creating new alignments. It is revolutionizing the way that we communicate, distribute, self-identify, all of it. It's very profound. And we're in it right now. And, you know, you talked about Rolling Stone dismissing Taibi as a Substack blogger. That's crappy. 
But it's also fair to say that, you know, that's a new, own, like, it's owned by an, a new guy. It's a different Rolling Stone than it used to be. It used to be a print magazine, uh, which is when he was sort of in his heyday at the end, the tail end of that. It's an online magazine now. You can criticize it, but I think it's actually uh, created a lot of energy around it. It has a whole new staff. One of my friends is an editor there. Um, so, I mean, it, it has a specific point of view that's, that's really almost... Um, completely unrecognizable from the previous Rolling Stone. And, you know, so anyway, there is a a house divided against itself, which is the field of journalism. And those who are in an, an older mainstream way of doing business, those who are in a newer way, um, and that division... I actually think is is somewhat tragic. I, I hate... At first, I said Twitter was thrilling, but I just want to clarify. I found it incredibly sad to watch people drag a really renowned journalist um, publicly. Other journalists do that. Um, because it didn't used to be like that. You know, we used to drag journalists in private <laughs> at the bar. <laughs> Listen, this has always been a part. Professional envy. Um, also, like righteous scorn. Um, thinking that somebody is a is a is a bankrupt talent. All of that existed. It just didn't exist publicly as a kind of commodity to gain followers and increase your brand. And that's the part that makes me sad. Um, and so anyway, uh, there was, there was a lot of dismissal of Matt Taibbi. Some of it, I think some of the criticism is, is fair, right? We can have an argument about whether or not, um, like, for instance, there's emails, private emails that are disclosed in that in that catch of information. Um, Jack Dorsey's email was was included. And now eventually that tweet was deleted. I saw people saying this is doxing. Is it doxing to share somebody's email? Um, private, e- I- private email, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. I, I think of that as like your physical address. You know, I read years ago, like never put in an email that you don't want to see on the cover of the New York Times. And I think with something as incendiary as this this issue was, um, people needed to be careful. You could really read within some of the things that they that he posted. Um, you could see the people who were being careful, both at Twitter, um, both uh, the the sort of Democratic. What was the Democratic? Oh, Ro Khanna. Yeah, Ro Khanna is the guy, the Democratic congressman who kind of comes in and says, "Hey, I don't think we should be doing this." No. And Twitter's like, "No, it's cool. We got it." And you know, and Ro Khanna comes off really well. Yeah, um, I just thought you know it was it was people had been saying that the social media companies had too much power and especially they thought, you know, people in the GOP or, or people that were very pro-Trump were saying, well, you know, we feel like we're, we're and Trump had been kicked off Twitter, right? Um, we, we feel that uh, they're, they're, they're thumbing the scales against us. And then there was like, no, 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 we're not doing that. And it, and it was proven to somewhat be true. Um, but we're now at, we're at, we're about to get data dump, not to use that word again, number two, if I'm not mistaken, because something came out, was it just yesterday? You know, so many things are happening. It's like, was that last week? But no, I think it was yesterday morning that it was revealed that the um, the deputy general counsel at Twitter, a guy named Jim Baker, had actually vetted or gone through or potentially edited and maybe even edited out some of the information that was going to be given to 
Matt Taibbi. And the reason this is a story is because, as someone posted yesterday, Jim Baker is sort of the uh, the forest gump of the swamp. Uh, that was not my quote. That's, that was a quote in the piece. Um, because he has been involved in a lot of different, very sort of questionable um, issues of the past couple of years, including um, he was, when he was general counsel at the FBI, he was part of, he was one of the people that backed this fake alpha bank connection with Donald Trump. Do you remember this? No, I don't even know what you're talking about. It was about. in 2016. People were like, oh yeah, Donald Trump has this back channel thing with alpha bank and yes, and it became a big thing and it was not true. It was fake. And he was part of that. Uh, and then he was part of the Steele dossier saying that this was, it was real. Uh, and then he went to Twitter general counsel. So he's basically, basically definitely more in the Democrats camp. Let's put it that way. Now. He also turns- has the name of a, a famously fallen uh, oh, televangelist. Jim Baker was such an interesting figure. When we Oh, were my kids. God. I oh, wish it was my. that Jim Baker. I How know. exciting when, would that be? When that I first, would just this would be, blow know, my head off. It's Sarah, Jim would, Baker. You know who's the general counsel? It's Jim Baker, the televangelist. I would have exploded. Yes. I literally just would have exploded if that oh. had been the case. Um, but in any case, he was the general counsel. Now, apparently... People are saying that Elon Musk didn't know this. I I can't answer whether he knew that or not, but he got fired. Elon Musk fired him as general counsel because apparently, and then you actually emailed me and said, or texted me and said, I don't understand this. And I was like, I don't understand this either. So it comes out a couple of days ago or yesterday, I, I can't remember. Taibi's like, well, here's what happened. Barry Weiss and I each got this, this data dump. And then we, it came from this one address. It was like something, Baker, something, but they didn't know who it was. Well, it turns out to be this guy. And their jaws dropped. Now, I don't know if he was the one that was sending it to them directly, which sounds a little weird, or if he had just, it had passed through him. We are going to find out more now because apparently Barry Weiss is going to do part two of this release of what happened at Twitter during the whole Hunter Biden laptop imbroglio. Now, here's the deal, though. Yes. Whatever this story is, it's unfinished. That. And therefore, the knee jerk, this is a nothing burger. I'm going to start charging people for that word, by the way. Personally, I'm going to send them a Venmo <laughs> request for a dollar every time they use it. Sick of this word. It's so specific and everybody wants to use it because it's real colorful. It's nothing to say that so fast about such like some of the most fascinating topics of our time is such a bad idea. Okay, I I mean here's here uh, this is a I mean it's guess it's a rhetorical question but it is a month before the election this story drops about guy who's running for president and he's been in politics for 40 years about his son. Now, look, you are only as happy as your unhappiest child. Uh, Hunter Biden for a very long time has been an addict. And this is a heartbreak and a sad thing, I'm sure, for any parent. But the fact of the matter is his father is running for president. These things come out, naked pictures, hookers, drugs, whatever it is. I haven't seen, I haven't seen the pictures. Um, it's a story. It's a story. I'm sorry. Whether you think it's too salacious, whether you think it has absolutely nothing to do with the election, it's a story. And then to be a social media company that locks the New York Post out of its account for 16 days when Kylie, what's her name? Kylie McEnany? The, she was Kaylee. the president. Kaylee McEnany is the name of a friend of mine, late friend of mine's last name, Kaylee. Anyway, she tweets about it. She gets her, her Twitter account locked. This is the month before the election. And she is the comms person for Donald Trump. This is a story. I'm sorry. You can say it's a nothing burger. It's not a nothing burger. This is a story. And I think we should know at how and why it came to be that some people in social media and journalism 
decided that it wasn't a story. I can understand that people have said, I read this this morning, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they had been given some of this information and they, it's not that they sat on it, they wanted to verify, which you should do. You can't just like burp out every single thing of piece of information that comes to you, but it is a story. And for people now to claim that it's not, that's, I don't know, that strikes me as somewhat in the bag for one side or the other. Well, uh, Matt Taibbi is not an uncomplicated figure. He has a little bit of a troubled past dating back to his time in Moscow running a magazine, which he later co-wrote a memoir about called The Exile. And he was like kind of a Hunter S. Thompson meets Gawker figure. Um in 2000, 2001 over in Moscow. Maybe we can talk about that. We're, we're running. We, we have other things to cover. Maybe yeah. we can talk about Taibbi's Me Too past uh, another time. Yeah. But just safe yeah. to say that he has a very bad reputation. Um, and some of it he earned. Um, some of it, it feels petty and ideological and uh, professional jealousy and yada yada. And some of it feels like yeah okay like he did not cover himself in glory in his in his earlier days and and many of us didn't i mean i i don't know that i want a bunch of the stuff that i wrote in my 20s brought out and and you know to be judged against that but this is uh, it's gross and so you know there are legitimate reasons to hold a grudge against taibi whether that's relevant in this case is another conversation and then there's illegitimate and it was all on on display and it's it's a story that's going to go on for a while and we don't know where it's going but i will say that it's clear elon musk who gave these two journalists this um sort of incredible look behind the curtains um is trying to make twitter a news brand the place that you go to find news that you trust because the mainstream media is so compromised right now. Trust in the mainstream media is so bad. The mainstream media is failing. He's trying to he's trying to 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 level up, you know, and 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 make Twitter the place that you go for news. And and maybe I mean I, you know, sunshine is disinfecting. So let's see let's see what happens. Um it is it is ongoing and it is and it is fascinating and any journalist that tell, says they're not paying attention is a liar. So um yes, we do have a few other things to talk about. Did you want to um tee us off with your I keep wanting to call it Nexium, which I think is a is a is a pill for um uh, anti for acid reflux. Like and but yeah. that, it's 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 a it's a pill for acid reflux, but it is also a very controversial organization. Um, that is generally called in the media a sex cult. Now, once you label something a sex cult, it's like <laughs> you can hardly get anybody to pay attention. That is just that it's done. The place is cooked. The, every story is going to go to the must read, most read list. Nobody's going to. So I, I, I'm going to try to refrain from the phrase sex cult. Uh, but this has been branded a sex cult. Uh, it is called Nexium N. It's like it's like all capital letters, N X I V M. Um, and it was in upstate N- New York. Is that right? I think yeah, it's, it's in Albany. It's yeah, in Albany. it's right near right near my mom by my mom's actually. Oh, good. You should tell her yeah. about it. Yeah, I should, I'm sure she'll be there's a lot of yeah. human potential development. Yeah, I, I think senior citizens should be branded. That's 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 okay. just that's, that's what we're gonna do, right? So, so uh, yeah, according to one of the former members, uh, the leader Keith Raniere chose the name based on the ancient Roman system of debt bondage known as Nexum. So, news. Oh yeah, use. so that that's that's wholesome. That well, that and that made sense to me. Um, okay, uh, Nexium became, you know, uh, became quite. Um, it hit the news in like 2018 because there was a story in the New York Times by Vanessa Gregoriados, who's a friend of mine and a great journalist, excellent, excellent writer, excellent writer, excellent writer. Um, and it basically talked about how this organization, which was developed as like a human potential group, um, 
And it had sort of elements of Scientology and self-help and Tony Robbins. Um, and it was like a multi-level marketing plan where you would pull in new members. And it's one of these like groups that sort of evolves out of something like Esalen or Gestalt uh-huh. therapy or whatever. It, it has ideas of self-empowerment, um, you know, there's this idea repeated again and again, there's no such thing as victimhood. And, you know, you and I can talk about that. That's, you know, we've, we've talked about, we live in this trauma culture where everybody wants to grab for the mantle of victimhood. And so there is something interesting and powerful in the organization that wants to say, you know what, you're abdicating a lot of personal choice around how you frame a story. And yet there's something very dangerous and manipulative when you uh, tell a group of people that there is no such thing as victimhood and everything that happens to you uh, is a choice, especially when the group seems sort of designed toward manipulation and control. The uh, leader of the of the group is a guy named Keith Raniere. Um, he started as... A sort of, he was interested in something called like neuro-linguistic programming. Again, this is like an excellent idea that you can use language to sort of disrupt human behavior. Um, and he is a self-proclaimed like smartest guy in the world. Um, but his <laughs> master, like he, he's, what he's a master of is human rapport. Like he really knows how to connect with people and he's a very deep listener and he kind of gets the sense of like what you need so that he can kind of withhold it or give it to you, you know? Now, this is not against the law. That's just, I mean, but this, but we're edging into stuff that is sort of borderline coercion bait and switch manipulation in he and and he is dating a lot of the women in this group he has a what we might call polyamorous lifestyle a lot of it is kept secret from the others and you know the idea is like i need you to be discreet like we don't want to disrupt we don't want to disrupt the group. But what happens is by keeping it secret, all the women don't know about each other. So he's got multiple relationships going at the same time and the women are not aware of the other women. Um, and then they start to find out about the other women and they start to get upset and start to pull away. Well, in 2014, this started around 2000 or something like that. In 2014, he begins a secret sorority called DOS, which stands for Dominus Obsequious Sororium, which is like a bunch of nonsense that like a seventh grader would come up with trying to sound uh, fancy. But anyway, this is a group where um, they have this like master slave dynamic, which, you know, once you use the master and slave, again, the story, this whole story gets hijacked by this part that I'm about to tell you. But I actually think the whole story of Nexium, which is, um, uh, the reason I'm talking about this uh, is because there's an HBO show called The Vow. There was the first season last year. The second season has recently come out. The second season is, I think, far superior to the first. And I have been really engaged in it. Um, I'm not quite done with it, but it's fascinating. And it covers the trial, the trial of Keith Raniere. Anyway, this thing where he recruits these women to basically be masters and then they procure women um, to come into the group. And I honestly think this whole thing is set up because Keith Raniere is a sex addict who needs more people. He, is there it, like a, a, a Jeffrey uh, Epstein, uh, Giselaine what a uh, Maxwell kind of aspect here in terms Yeah, there's like a multi-level marketing scam to bring in new 
sex partners for him. Partner might not be the right word given some of the stories I've heard. But anyway, um, the women do this. And let me tell you how it works because, you know, one of the things, I think one of the interesting things about this story is that the fundamental question is how much of our behavior are we responsible for? And when have we been coerced or manipulated? And, and what's the tipping point of what is our personal responsibility and what has been done to us? And this is a very central question in a lot of the Me Too stories. You know, what's coercion? What's you not taking responsibility for your wanting to be a part of something? Um, what is force? What is complicity? So, Okay, so how this works is um, the women that are like the masters of this group, and I think there's like six to eight, they come to another woman. I'm going to do it now. And they say, Nancy, there is this really incredible group that I want you to be a part of, and it will change your life. But in order to tell you about it, I need collateral. I need collateral that if it were released would embarrass you. This is literally like the oldest trick in the book. And also, so let me just counter to you. The first thing you said is like, this would change, this will change your life. So I have to be receptive to wanting my life changed. So obviously they're not just going to go to, they're going to go to someone that already has a vulnerability, right? (laughs) They're going to go to someone that has a vulnerability that is willing to give up maybe like the most shameful thing she's ever done because the payout is going to be so magnificent. Do I have this right? That's exactly right. And that's why one of the the sort of most successful of the masters is this woman, Alison Mack, who runs the acting proponent. She runs the acting curriculum. Now, if you want to find women who are hot and insecure and desperate for sort of some kind of kind of mm-hmm. savior or like or attention or leveling up of some kind young actresses desperate to get into Hollywood yep Allison Mack was in a show called Smallville uh but but she um yeah she runs the acting curriculum and she is bringing in these women. Okay, so what I'm going to say is I need collateral. And Nancy, I want you to take, let's say, naked pictures. Okay. Okay. Let me, let me, let me just get my phone. Okay. Yeah. And the first thing I'm going to say is that's not good enough. Okay. I need better naked pictures. Okay, hold on. Now, you know what I would do if I were being recruited for Nexium? I would give them like the best naked pictures. And I'd be like, don't send those naked pictures of me that look really hot. Um, and then they would eventually distribute them and everybody would want to date me. That's how go. I think Nexium would work. That's how I, but, I always have said. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, well, they get a little bit. Um, the naked pictures are eventually not enough and people have to do things like 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 basically record videos of themselves saying all these lies. One woman records a video of her telling her parents that she is a prostitute. I don't know if that was true or not. I have no idea. But they they eventually, you know, they they keep kind of like upping the stakes on this collateral. All right. So you've given me the collateral, right? And now I say to you, well, guess what? By agreeing to this, you have taken a lifetime vow. You've taken a lifetime vow, vow of obedience to this sorority. And you're like, um, <laughs> that's not what I thought I wanted. And so there's, there's increasing, there's these stories of like what you have to do. Um, and it's all being, quote unquote, run by women, these masters, right? They're telling their underlings what they need to do. Some of it is around weight management and eating. Some of it is around sexual acts. There's a really creepy story where um, Alison Mack has recruited a young actress 
She gets into the the thing. She gives the naked pictures. She's in. She's got a lifetime vow. And Allison Mack says, okay, you need to go up to Keith Raniere and say, I will do anything for you. So she's like, oh, God, okay. So she kind of goes up, she gets her, you know, courage up, and she says, I will do anything for you. And he's like, okay, great. They go into this room. He blindfolds her, and he ties her hands together, and she's naked. And she's like, oh, God. And she starts feeling somebody go down on her. And she's like, okay, this is awful. But then she starts hearing Keith Raniere in her ear, and she realizes it's not Keith Raniere going down on her. It's someone she doesn't even know who it is. God. And then she feels long hair and she's like, okay, God, it's a woman. Um, okay, good. But she never sees it. And then that's like, that's one of the things that happens. You, you do realize that that's like somebody's totally hot sexual fantasy, right? Which person? I mean, I can definitely imagine that there would be people oh, the like- woman. Yeah, like I would be, uh, not me. I'm just saying you would be like lead and you're just blindfolded and people are doing things to you and you don't even know. Like, that's just okay. like, this is, I thought, I mean, that I got to say, in terms of terrible things that could happen, that to me doesn't sound like that. What I have a question though, before we okay. go forward with this, I want to address that though. Okay. All right. But quickly, when you said, like, okay, you've taken a lifetime vow, is there like threat? Is it just all like, the people getting bound up in the fact that they are now insecure and they don't know what to do? Or are there threats of like physical violence or no, death? No, the collateral. It's the collateral. Okay, well then, if you know. leave, then well, we so, have this collateral. Wow. That's well, why I would give them the hot naked picture of me. Well, this is what I've, we've said this before on the show. I was like, if someone, if, if you have a picture of your titties out in the world and someone says, I'm going to expose it, it's like, okay, fine. Half the world has breasts. Like, but what, this is why the they deal? had to. Inc- they, this is why they had to raise the stakes on the collateral because okay. the naked pictures are not enough. Nobody, no, nobody cares. No, nobody cares. Okay, so to your point that this scenario has overlap with, uh, we might want to call it a rape fantasy. We might want to call it a, a fantasy of surrender. This is absolutely true. I want to make two. I want to make two points. One is that there's a there's a big difference between fantasizing about something and actually True. doing it. 100%. A. Yep. B, there are a lot of women. Um, there's, I can't, I don't know the exact number of women that were involved in DOS, but a lot of them really enjoyed this and they're still in it. They actually interview women that are like, you know, I love Keith. I loved being a part of this. This opened me up in profound ways. And and they start, ta- you know, they're into it. And then there's women that are completely horrified by it and feel traumatized by it. I think this is a really important point that <clears throat> it's not necessarily that all women are uh, claiming that they've been victimized by this. <clears throat> It's that some do and that the women that do have a fair claim that they weren't really aware of what they were signing on for. You know, what is and 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 this is this is going to court and the lawyer is saying, look, these women, this was a choice. They're adult women and they signed on for it and they they had. But. But the question is, did they really have a choice? Because at some point they've got this collateral on them. Well, right, that they gave voluntarily. Okay, so look, we've all written about and read a lot about cults, right? And you hear these horrible stories like my daughter, she's 20 years old, she's in this cult, I can't get her out. And the daughter, and even though you know the cult is horrible, um, the daughter's like, I'm fine, I want to be here, this is what I want. And at a certain point, you have to say yes. Like I've written about Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And it's like, well, you know, they were adults, they could do it problem with that particular one is things did start to become murderous and then there was a poisoning and then there's threats of violence and I'm going to take your children. Like this was stuff that borders on illegality. This or is completely illegal. This is like, well, I can see the woman's like, I like this. I think it's insane. I mean, you didn't even mention the branding. I think that I haven't gotten there yet. I'm about to. Okay. 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 But okay. But am I wrong in saying that Alison Mack actually was indicted? Didn't yeah, she? she got like three years for sex trafficking. Okay. And the reason is because they're defining sex trafficking as like 
she pulled in women for commercial gain. The commercial gain being an increase in status with Keith Raniere. I actually think legally it's not it's not very solid personally. No, but I, think, I don't think so either. I mean, these yeah, are adults. But I, I think the thing is, is that, you know, you start telling these stories to a jury. They are, say sound so bad. Um, yeah. So we get to the branding thing. So this is the this is the detail that I think overwhelms the Nexium narrative. And we'll talk about it for just a second. So at one point, they decide that they're going to brand all the women. You hear like little conversations with some of the masters between them and Keith Raniere. They're kind of like brainstorming how they're going to do this brand. It's his initials, but it's kind of like you can't kind of looks like a hieroglyph. You have to like turn it on its side to know that it's his initials. Anyway, the women get brought to this room and each of them takes a turn on the table and then they are branded on their body now we should just yeah. what, branded meaning like with a hot iron not like yeah, hot oh iron. here's my brand like they're they're like 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 a cow like you would brand a cow with the letters of your ranch now the defense attorney in this case makes the point of you know, everyone wants to talk about the branding, but branding is a tradition like in the military, like in other different fraternities. If it was a bunch of guys doing it, you'd never hear anything about it, but it's women. So it's suddenly like, oh, these poor women got branded. I think that's a point. I think there's a point to that. I really do. You're making a face. You don't buy no, it. No, no, the only I reason I, no. Wait, no. The only reason I'm not buying it is because I, it's not that I'm not buying it. I'm willing to entertain this, but I actually have never heard of people's in fraternities or in the military getting branded, tattooed, hundred percent, but like actually branded with hot irons. I don't know any. I've never heard of that. I think it's been a tradition. It's on, and it's also on the television show Yellowstone. Um, well, they, okay. they brand the 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 guys that work at the at the ranch, and as you know, that is. That's science if it happened on Yellowstone. Um, but I never understood, I, I'm going to sound like such a jerk. I never understood the outrage over the branding because to me, it was like, okay, it sucks. I know I, I don't want to be branded either. And I think it's creepy to brand your, your, um, initials on, on somebody. But I have heard worse in sororities. I really have. Of like, shit that you had to do. And I've heard much worse in fraternities. And okay. the idea of these of these women branding each other, it just it it never to me rose to the level of sex cult. However, I think the branding is really not the worst story at all. At all. And one of the stories that you hear is about a family, you know, he has, um, this is a global company. He's got, he's got, um, stuff in Mexico and <clears throat> Canada and other places. Anyway, this Mexican, very rich Mexican family, which has four kids, two of the older girls come and spend their summers at Nexium. Uh, he becomes very close to them. By the time one of them is 18, he waits for her 18th birthday and then he starts sleeping with her. He's sleeping with both the sisters and then the younger sister comes and joins them. She's 15 and he starts a sexual relationship with her. And the 18-year-old finds out about it. This is so fascinating. I'm sorry. The 18-year-old finds out that her sister is having sex with Keith Raniere at 15. And what's her reaction? She's angry? Jealous? Jealousy. Oh, shocking. Women jealous of each other? Wait, I you must tell me about this phenomena, Sarah Hepler. It's jealousy. And because she had to wait till she was 18. So that means her sister basically was hotter in the eyes of the big guy. And that's not okay. And Keith Raniere says, some girls are more emotionally mature than others. And the 18-year-old, whose name is Danny, I don't know if that's a real name or <clears throat> different name. Anyway, Danny 
starts to act out. There's all sorts of things she's doing. She steals from the company, but then she gives the money back. Uh, but she's not lining up with their like they they always talk about these ethical breaches like yeah. <laughs> like Keith Raniere yeah. has this whole thing about like like he's the most ethical man and it's he wears a shirt called ethics it's hilarious I mean it's hilarious because it's like basically wearing the shirt of the opposite of what you are but anyway yeah. protection yeah. yeah yeah so he decides to punish Danny the eighteen year old and he creates something called an isolation room. And according to her testimony, she is told to go into a darkened room with no television, no phone, no nothing. It's an empty room with a mattress. And she's going to stay there until she can heal her ethical breach. She came out two years later. Whoa, whoa. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, oh, I can't. I can't. I can't. Oh, Sarah, no. <laughs> You're doing exactly what I did I last night when I watched this. Holy shit. Okay. All right. So, yeah. Okay. okay. So, yeah. so, so, and it's very complicated because the family is on board with this. The family decides that she needs to be taught a lesson too. And so the family members are bringing her food and they're leaving it outside and then they don't, she doesn't see them, but, and she's writing all these letters to Keith Raniere, you know, like, I love you. Let me come out. And, but for whatever reason, she's in there for two years. She loses her mind. One day she, she walks out and she just leaves. Now, one of the questions that comes up at trial is whether or not that door was ever locked. In other words, Keith Raniere is going to make the case that she could have left at any time. She's going to make the case that it was locked. She couldn't leave. Sometimes it's locked. Sometimes it's not. Keith Raniere also says she was allowed to leave. Sometimes her testimony, and by the way, she didn't have a visa. Like there were all sorts of things um, where like her visa had been revoked. She doesn't have any money. She doesn't, you know, it was this this story is the worst story now it's actually not a part of the criminal charges against Keith Raniere but it's color to what he's done and i and i think it's one of i i think it just i think this case absolutely sinks him this story absolutely sinks him i had you know how i'm like my friend calls me like a benefit of the doubt giving motherfucker like there was a long time in this show where I was like, I had this weird sympathy for Keith Raniere. Like I didn't think he was a good guy, but I was like, I felt sorry for him. He seemed like he had this like unfillable love hole. So do I, I can understand that. Yeah. Well, I do. Unfillable and, love hole. Is that, yeah. I think it sounds like a, like a, like a porn movie. But, yeah, um, definitely yeah. my porn yeah. movie. <laughs> This is the collateral I'm giving to Nexium, but and my sympathy broke. It broke right here. He also used to tell a lot of the women that he was having relationships with that he would get them pregnant, and he like kept them in the loop that way through their 30s and 40s. I mean, this guy—it's so bad. That's why I'm telling you, the branding thing to me is not the deal. I know it gets all the headlines, but the stuff that was going on in this organization is really dark and it's really messed up. And there is also a lot of women that are, were still on board with it. I mean, you know, you get into this idea of like, I don't know what's operating in a cult, but sometimes it's that people don't want to be responsible for their own life and their own choices, and they want to just abdicate yeah, what happens to somebody else. Sometimes they're brainwashed. I mean, I don't know what's the difference, but you know, those things are operating inside of this story. So, you know, what what borders up again on illegal and what's not illegal? How can it be? How can it be interpreted? He's going to say one thing. Some people liked it. Some of it's voluntary. But you also have, I mean, this is a master manipulator. And we're about to bump up on our time. We're going to talk about another manipulator in a minute. But you look at it something like the two years in a dark room, that this, even if it was open, that this was something that this person felt was his will to impose. 
Mm-hmm. This is not the two things. First of all, this is not somebody that should have like free reign over humans. We're never going to be able to stop that. But it's also someone that is never going to be able to change. Never. It's never. So he's going to, he's going to go, you know, he, they can, you know, expunge this particular thing. He'll start something else. And there will always be people willing to be part of it. Um, we are bumping up against our time here. So we are going to uh, cut this episode off here and go into our bonus episode where we are going to talk about another master manipulator named Elizabeth Finch, uh, the, the, the Grey's Anatomy <clears throat> hoaxer and liar who was re-exposed again yesterday on the Ankler. Uh, and then we're going to give our, our, we're going to talk maybe a little bit too about an essay that we read. And, and I'm going to uh, give one more detail about the Nexium <laughs> case that I think is like also gasp inducing, but you have to come join us in the bonus content to hear That's it. That's right. And we'll, we'll give our, our, our hot box recommendations too. So Sarah, before we, we dip out of here, what's the name of this podcast? Smoke 'em if you got 'em. Yeah, it is. Okay, guys, we'll see you at the bonus. Smoke 'em.